So the question is, how uh, should we measure success? How do you measure success? Are you successful? How do you know? Years ago, and I'm dating myself a bit, there was an ad campaign by uh, Morgan Stanley Dean Witter in which they had uh, this uh, older sort of curmudgeon of an actor say, here at uh, Dean Witter, here at Morgan Stanley, whatever, uh, we measure success one investor at a time. Okay, well, that's, that's a measurement, that's a metric, although immediately you realize that that investor is going to measure success <laughs> differently. They're going to measure it on the return on their investment. And uh, other people are going to measure success differently still. They're going to measure success based on uh, the job they have or how happy they are or how healthy they are or what kind of car they drive or how much money they have in the bank. There's all kinds of different ways to measure success. So the question becomes, how should we measure success? How should a Christian measure success? How does Jesus measure our success? That may be the question. And today we are going to look at a church that is successful uh, by Jesus' standards, but probably not by many others. It's a small, struggling church. There's a lot of suffering going on. But in contrast to the letter we just looked at, uh, directed to the, the church in Sardis. This is a letter directed to the church in Philadelphia. And, uh, and Jesus, Sardis, he only has correction, no praise. With Philadelphia, he only has affirmation, no correction. So, as you know, the book of Revelation, which is what we've been in, is the last book of the Bible. It was uh, written by John when John's an old man. It is written when he is on the island of Patmos one morning while having his devotional time. He is called up into heaven, swept up into heaven. He sees Christ, and then he's told to write down the things that he sees. And he comes down with this book uh, that is, in some senses, unique in the Bible. It is an apocalyptic book. Uh, it is its own genre, and uh, it is a book that, it, that uh, celebrates that Jesus wins. Now, not that we win, although if we're with Jesus, we win, but there's a sense in which, as I put in the Friday update this, this week, that Jesus wins, and he wins over even us. There's a sense in which he conquers even us, and then we get to celebrate, we get to participate in his victory. So it's written to a group of people that are suffering, and he is telling them ultimately that they're going to suffer even more than they are suffering. Um, so today we're at the sixth of the seventh letters. So uh, we started in Ephesus, and then we just went clockwise. Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and now we're in Philadelphia. And as you can see, not much, dis not much distance between Sardis and Philadelphia, about 30 miles. Now, if you're on one of these tours of the seven churches of, of uh, ancient Turkey, uh, if you're on one of these tours, uh, you often don't go to Philadelphia because there's just not that much to see. Um, so I have, uh, I have one picture here, and this has got just part of, the, uh, part of the wall around it. It's about all that is still standing. These buildings here that you see are just the, the modern-day city uh, of Alashir, which is in the background. So um, 
As I noted, uh, and as I read, I've come to realize Philadelphia is not a very big city. It's fairly wealthy. It was started about 180 to 160 BC. It was started uh, as sort of a missionary enterprise, not of Christians, but of Greek culture. And so the Greeks uh, are trying under Alexander the Great to sort of take over everything and, and they locate this city, Philadelphia. The name means uh, brotherly love. Phileo is a Greek word for, for love. And uh, Adelphos is brother. And so it's the city of brotherly love and they, they locate this city along a trade route. And so it, is, uh, it, it becomes wealthy and uh, it has a number of things going for it, and it's successful in its enterprise to sort of share Greek culture. We know this because by the time Christ is born, everyone's pretty much only speaking Greek, and we have uh, references to Philadelphia as being um, called Little Athens. So um, it's a prosperous city for a little while, and then a couple things happen. First of all, the earthquake that, that we mentioned la- that I mentioned last week that, that destroyed the city of Sardis on the top of the mountain. This is an earthquake that hit in AD 17. That earthquake also devastated Philadelphia. And in fact, the uh, Roman government uh, was, uh, was known, we know that they gave Philadelphia five years of not having to pay taxes because the city was so wiped out. So the Philadelphians appreciated the five-year hiatus from attacks, but they were a little frustrated that Rome didn't come through and provide more support for them. And uh, then they're really miffed at Rome when the emperor, Diocletian, later on uh, tells them that they have to rip out all their vineyards. So Philadelphia was on this uh, it's sort of a volcanic area, so there's lots of earthquakes, but it's also rich soil, and so there's lots of vineyards there. And these vineyards were challenging the prosperity of the vineyards around Rome. And so the emperor of Rome, of the whole Roman Empire, issues this uh, order that all the, all the, the vineyards in in and around Philadelphia had to be destroyed. And so now the city has been devastated twice. Uh, An earthquake has has demolished it and they didn't get the help that they thought. Uh, You know, FEMA doesn't show up. Uh, It's not declared a federal disaster area. There's no, you know, no interest-free loans. There's, There's just not help for them. And then their economy is completely busted. And so it's a, it's a very difficult time to be in Philadelphia. And so it's, it's especially difficult, as we're going to see, for the church in Philadelphia because uh, in addition to all the economic hardships of the city that the city is going through and the earthquake itself, uh, they get sideways with the Jews. Uh, and so there's a lot of references that we're going to see in the text to these doors being closed and locked and they don't have access to some of the things that they were apparently previously uh, allowed access to. And so there's a lot of suffering that is going on. And uh, this causes a great deal of trouble. And uh, so they're struggling. Jesus writes them a letter. And the letter is one of affirmation. And the letter is one of encouragement. And here's the deal. We know the letter worked. Now, in general, we know the book of Revelation worked because it was encouraging lots of churches. But there's a couple, and, and we've got this interesting, uh, the, this account 
that uh, is in, in sort of Roman literature, and, and there's these six martyrs. They were from Carthage, and they the, their conversation with the proconsul, uh, whose name I'm going to have to look at. Uh, his name is Saturnius, and so these six um, these six men from Carthage. They're called the Skeleton Martyrs. Uh, the proconsul is telling them that they need to worship Caesar. I mean, this is part of the problem that, that the Jews were having, excuse me, that the Christians were having with the Jews for a long time. The Romans thought that the, Jew, that the Christians were just a subset of, of the Jews, which they were, which they, in one sense, I mean, it's building out of Judaism. But the Romans sort of thought, okay, well, the, the Jews have got the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes and the Zealots and the, and the Christians. And that was fine. And because the Jews had this get-out-of-jail-free card with Rome, they didn't have to declare their allegiance to, uh, to Caesar, the Christians didn't have to declare their allegiance to Caesar. But then tension begins to grow between the Christians and the Jews because the Christians are doing evangelism and Jews are converting, and so the Jews that aren't converting are frustrated. And, and so they begin to get, they begin to, not allow the Jews to come into, or the Christians to come into the synagogue. And this is going to cause problems. And so now you've got a whole bunch of Christians who are being forced by the Romans to declare that Caesar is Lord. These six men were an example. And the proconsul Saturnius says, you know, declare, look, let's just, let's just get this over with. You read the, the long dialogue between them. He's like, let's just get this over with. Just declare that Caesar is Lord and we can all go on our way. And they say, it's not going to happen. And he says, oh, yes, it is. And they go, no, but what's going to happen is we're going to tell you about Christ so you can become a Christian. <laughs> and he says, not on your life. Don't even think about going there. He goes, look, you need to declare that Jesus is Lord. And they say, we're not going to do it. He says, I will have you killed. And they say, bring it on. And he says, okay, well, I'm going to give you 30 days to think about it. And they say, we don't need 30 days. It's unthinkable. We're not going to deny Christ. And so he says, okay, uh, you're going to be killed by the sword. And their response at that point was, um, they said, uh, our God is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, which is a quote out of the book of Revelation. So the book of Revelation is written to people who are suffering, who are about to suffer even more. So it's, it's obviously got a lot of, uh, it's got a lot of, applicability throughout the last 2,000 years, but it was particularly important right then, and, uh, and it, it, was, it worked. You know, the church continued to march on, and in fact, we know that the church in Philadelphia was particularly known to march on. Edward Gibbon, who wrote uh, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, who was not a Christ follower, very anti-Christian. He sort of buys into the, the argument that the Romans put up when the Roman Empire was coming down, that the problem with, with uh, the Roman Empire was the Christians. And so the Roman culture, the Roman Greek culture was being subverted by all these people coming to Christ. This is what Augustine is going to write about in City of God to try and, and counter this argument that's being made in the uh, early 5th century. Gibbon writes about this, uh, you know, in the 20th century. But he has this line, and the book is, you know, massively thick. I don't know anybody that's read it, but there is a line in there towards the end that talks about how the church in Philadelphia uniquely survives all of the challenges that are marshaled against it.
So, uh, we come now to the text. This is uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Again, standard line. Uh, right. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. So remember, we get the, where the letter is being addressed, and then we get something, some identification about Christ. And normally, these go back to the Old Testament, some reference to God the Father being God in the Old Testament, and then to Revelation chapter 1, there's some, some way that, that Jesus is linking who he is to their unique situation and to Revelation chapter 1. This is not found in Revelation chapter 1. It, there's plenty that's found in the Old Testament. The whole idea that God is holy, this is an attribute of uniquely uh, of God the Father. Last week I mentioned that in Isaiah 6, it's one of the few times we see a word repeated three times. Holy, 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 God is perfectly perfect and righteous and just and altogether removed. And, and he's true. So the contrast that Jesus is giving here because this is referring to Jesus. He is the one who is holy and true, who holds the keys uh, of David, as opposed to Domitian, as opposed to the Jews, as opposed to people who are letting them down, as opposed to people who are imperfect, as opposed to people who are faithless, right? Jesus is holy and true. And he says to people who are locked out, uh, that I've got the key of David, right? I can get you into the synagogue. They're getting locked out of the synagogue because of the growing tension between the Jews and Christians. He says, I have the key. And he is the one, Jesus is the one. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. So we're, we've got this reference to Jesus as being this uh, one with the keys that they need. Uh, okay, I'm going to have to take a class on how to use this clicker. I know that you have little strength. Is that the next passage? Oh, my goodness. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to my Bible. I know your deeds. I am, there we go. We're on it. I know your deeds. <laughs> so I have a, a friend uh, who worked for Microsoft. He started in the, in the mid-80s, the time to start at Microsoft. At the time that he told me he got a job at Microsoft, I'd never heard of Microsoft, hadn't heard of Bill Gates. But over the next couple of years, Microsoft is growing like a, you know, like a brush fire. And I start to hear about Bill Gates. And at some point, Bill Gates is you know, 35 years old and he's, he's the richest man in the world. And my friend is occasionally reporting into Bill Gates. And so I asked him, I go, so what's, what's Gates like? And he said, he goes, you know, we just had a presentation. I'm on a team. We had a presentation to make to Gates. And he said, uh, he's very smart and he doesn't suffer fools. And he goes, we start our presentation and he interrupts us and he says, stop it. He goes, I went on the server. And at the time I have to tell you, I had no idea what a server is. He goes, I went on the server and I've, I've looked at what you were working on. I've looked at all your efforts. I've looked at all your preparation of this presentation. I looked at all this stuff. And my friend said <laughs> that they just sunk. Like, are you kidding me? He knows our deeds. He knows our work. He knows what we've done. <laughs> he knows what we haven't done. He knows it all. And he was very challenged by that. Now, in this case, 
When Jesus says to the church in, in Philadelphia, to the Christians there, I know your deeds, it's actually a good thing, right? He knows. I want to say to you again, because I've said this earlier in this series, some of you just need to know that God knows. I mean, he sees everything. He sees your efforts. He knows what is going on. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. So again, we get all these references to doors being open and closed, and we think in one sense it's sort of referring back to the synagogue, and the fact that Jesus has the keys is sort of symbolic of his power. There's a lot of discussion among the scholars that this open door may mean that uh, they have an open door for evangelism, right? That because of who they are and how they are suffering, God is opening a door for them to see others come to faith, which is, a, uh, which is a, a, an investment of our life that has an eternal return. It could be that he is referring to their own salvation. Some people say, look, an open door is better than a closed door. It's just a positive thing. We're not entirely certain what this means, but it's, it's, all, it, it's all good. I know that you have little strength, right? And it's a small church. It's a small area. It's a small church. They're struggling. They're they're struggling under Rome. They're struggling under the Jews. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know that in the midst of really hard things, you are being faithful. Um, And then... I will make those who are afraid of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. So here's this whole thing. We, we, he's, this is the second time we've got synagogue of Satan in these letters. The first time was in the second letter, referred to the Christians in Smyrna. The only other church, by the way, that is only affirmed, Smyrna and, and, uh, and Philadelphia, so we don't know whether saying those uh, the synagogues say who claim to be Jews though they are not whether this is a statement that says that those Jews who have not then become Christians are no longer children of God. We don't know if it's people claiming to be Jews who were not actually Jews. We don't know if it's these people are being uh, pushed down as a synagogue of Satan because they're persecuting Christians. We don't completely know, but he says, "I know you're struggling." I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. So um, he's going to give four promises. And so one of them is you're, you're in the end, you're going to win. The people who are persecuting you, you will, uh, you will rise above. And there's a, maybe this is sort of like Joseph. That might have been what they heard. Because, of course, Joseph had been persecuted by his brothers, sold into slavery. Then, you know, the famine hits and he rises up through the ranks in Egypt and his brothers come before him and they're bowing down and and, uh, they've fallen on their knees because they think he's this high-ranking Egyptian. And, uh, and he says, look, you meant it for, for evil, I meant it for good. It's not necessarily a, a revenge passage, but he says, you're, you are going to triumph. You're going to come out on top. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, so this is a second thing. Since you have kept my commandments, I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. Now, so much is written because you, you're trying to figure out 
is the letter to these, is the letter of the book of Revelation, is this specifically for those that are getting in the first century? How does it apply to those of us that are in the 21st century? Is this hour of trial, their hour of trial? Is it the final hour of trial before the return of Christ? How do we lay these things out? What's worth noting is that the trials that get talked about uh, in the Bible as being close to the end of the age are trials that we see throughout the, the 2,000 years. And so we're not exactly certain how to understand this. Again, the book of Revelation is a symbolic book. It's a picture book. It's got all kinds of things working on it. But he's saying to them, I'm going to keep you from the worst of it. I'm not going to let you go. He doesn't say that we will not go through trials. Very significantly, that is not the message of the book of Revelation. And lots of Christians think that we've got some sort of promise that we're not going to suffer. Au contraire. We are told to expect suffering, and I'm about to tell you that suffering is, is and can be a good thing. Um, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar of the temple. Pillars were, again, these massive, I, I never tire of seeing the pillars when I'm traveling in Greece or traveling in Turkey. You see these massive pillars and it's amazing. But he says, I, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God, uh, the one who is victorious. We're going to be these people of strength and stability. Never again will they leave it. We're not going to get pushed out of the synagogue as they were. Um, <laughs> Oh my goodness. And I will also write on them my new name. So the fourth sort of promise that he makes is that he's going to, he's going to claim us as his own. Whoever has ears, again, final line in all of these passages, all of these letters, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Just because you have ears doesn't mean that you hear. So, uh, a couple things here. Look, we know from historical accounts that, that there was a lot of persecution that was going on at the time that this letter was being written and more was coming. Christians were uh, being fed to wild animals. They were having their toes cut off. They were being covered with pitch and lit on fire. They were, they were being burnt at the stake. They were, they were, I mean, sort of the best that you could hope for was that you, could, you didn't have a job and you were starving. So um, what he says in verse 10 here is there's a key, key line here. He says, since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently. So the Greek word here is hupomeno. Meno means uh, to stay, to, to endure. And hooper or hyper, it's sort of hyper staying or it's, it's being patient in a particularly stressful situation. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus hooper menos the cross. He hyper stays, he's, he's there, he endures. And so uh, I want you to understand that, that this is a letter that we get here. It's a letter from Jesus in which he is encouraging people and cheering them on who are having very difficult time. And he is encouraging them to remain faithful. He's encouraging them to upermeno, to be, to patiently endure the suffering that they are seeing. So I would just back up and say, Look, you need to understand 
The Bible talks a great deal about suffering and it suggests things. This is the Bible in general. It suggests that we should expect suffering. It suggests that suffering can be a, a, a good thing. Uh, that it can refine us. Peter will write about this. James will write about this. Uh, that, that suffering and trials and hardships is going to help us understand what's lasting and what's important. I just know, uh, i shared this before, before I uh, had the stroke, I was uh, working on a, on a book called Broken. And I was saying to Sherry a few times, I said, you know, I am, I am, uh, I'm just a little nervous about this because I don't feel as though I have ever particularly suffered as I see so many people around me have. Now, my suffering was still not anywhere near as significant to what many of you have suffered and are suffering. But I, my, my concern as I was looking around, as I was reading, as I was reading scripture, was that uh, people who haven't been knocked down are often um, shallow. <laughs> They're untested. And so there's a sense in which suffering, which we do not like, can be a merciful gift from God to help us become better people. And, and we are told that in this broken and fallen world, we should expect to suffer. Jesus suffered, we should expect to suffer. That's, that's just the way this, this is gonna unfold. I think the unique insights from these letters to churches in Revelation that are suffering, such as Smyrna and now today, Philadelphia, it, it, there's, there's some unique statements that get made that we need to hold on to. And there are, there are four that I want to highlight for you. The first is, it's important to realize that suffering doesn't have to be for nothing. Right? That there can be, because of who God is. This does not apply, by the way. If you don't believe in God, if you don't believe in a God who is personal, who knows... If, if that's the case, then suffering has no value. There's no value in suffering. But if, in fact, there is a God who knows what's going on, then the suffering that we go under can be an opportunity to grow. Now, not everybody grows through suffering. The cliche is some people get better, some people get bitter. It's a real challenge. We don't want to, be, we don't want to become bitter, but there, suffering does not have to be without purpose. And so even when our suffering is not linked to some specific seeming hand of God, or even if, when it's not even tied to uh, it's sort of the idiot tax we pay on our own sin, it's just suffering in a broken world. Our suffering can help us become better people. A second thing to understand is that it's important to know from this letter, right? Jesus says this, I'm watching, I know, I know your deeds, I know what you're doing, right? It's never, it's never without an audience. God knows what's going on in your life. He knows how you're trying. And so the suffering that you're enduring can have purpose and it is being watched. And, and so we're not in this completely alone. The third thing to realize from this is that Jesus allows this suffering to happen. So he's writing to 
Christians who he is affirming. He's Jesus. Revelation chapter 1 talks about the incredible power that he has. Right? It's, it's this amazing passage. We're going to back up and look at it when we finish this because there's just so much there. You need that vision of Jesus. Uh, I can't think of the name of Telegaga Knights with the uh, Jimmy Bobby or whoever that uh, Will Ferrell character is. He wanted to picture baby Jesus in the manger. Okay, yeah, okay, except Jesus grew up and he is now the King of kings and Lord of lords and he reigns in heaven and he has all power. And when John sees him, he collapses. And so Jesus has power. He is allowing this church that he cares for, that he loves, he is allowing this church to suffer. But you've got to understand he holds it in his hand. He has control. He has control of your situation, even when it doesn't seem like he has control of your situation. He ultimately has control of your situation. And, 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 and this, the third and fourth go together. It's critical to realize he has withheld no good thing from us. Right? So he, he shows up. There's there's issues here when we get into suffering and, and the problem of evil and all of that and why would God allow this and why doesn't he stop it? And look, I, I can have this conversation with you philosophically and we can go through all the different arguments for the problem of evil and point out that the problem of evil is a problem for people that don't believe in God. Uh, we can do all of that. I don't want to do that today. I don't want to go there today. I just want to remind you, he shows up. Right? I mean, God is, not, God is not removed from the pain and suffering in this world. He shows up. He takes on flesh. He becomes one of us. He shows up and he suffers. So however all of this is being worked out, it's not that he is distant from this. He is right there. He has gone through this. He is our high priest. He understands this. And he is allowing you to go through what you're going through because <laughs> it's for your best. In light of eternity, it's so we don't see that way. If we could see everything, if we knew everything God knew, we would choose the path that God has set before us. And so it's, it's important for us to understand. Jesus sees us. He knows what's best. He knows what he's doing for you. He would withhold nothing good from you. Indeed, he goes to the cross on our behalf. So um, look, I know that some of you are, are suffering and there's just all the, all the kinds of suffering that are going on and you know, we've, got, we've got the pandemic and we've got racial strife and justice issues and we've got unemployment and we've got financial hardships and we've got, you know, we've got all the things that are going on and some people are, are sort of water skiing over the top of a lot of these challenges and some people are not. I mean, I'm talking about people at Christ Church. Some people are slammed and some people are, are not so much. I know some of you are slammed. And I, I want to say there's a sense in which you, you can take encouragement from knowing that pain and trials and suffering is expected in this life. It doesn't have to be for nothing. You can be better on the other side of this. You can be refined. You can... Count it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the very test of your faith that you're going through right now is going to make you more like Christ and that the, that the qualities of Jesus, the, the qualities of the Spirit of God, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control that we're after are actually the things that are being built into your life by a God who is there and who loves you. 
So let me back up and end by saying, I, I started by asking the question, how do we measure success? There's a sense in which the way success gets measured in the letter to the, the Philadelphians is by endurance, by, by holding on. And uh, so favorite, uh, a, a, a scene I like, it's not my favorite scene in the Rocky movies, uh, but a scene I like from Rocky one. So Rocky, Sylvester Stallone, the Italian stallion, you know, through some fluke in marketing problems. He's a, he's a know-nothing boxer. He's going to get a chance to box the heavyweight champion of the world, Apollo Creed. And he trains. He takes this very seriously. But he says to Adrian, his, his, in this movie, his girlfriend, soon to be his wife, he says to Adrian, um, I know I can't beat him. I just want to go the distance. Right? I, I, know, I, can't, I know I can't beat Apollo Creed. Now, he almost does, right? He loses in a split decision. I know I can't beat him. I just want to go the distance. And there's a sense in which that's sort of the message, I think, that we get here in this letter to the Christians in Philadelphia who are suffering. And Jesus says, go the distance. Don't give up. Keep getting up. You get thrown to the mat. You get punched in the face. And you go down to the mat. Get up like Rocky got up. He continued to get up. So I want to encourage you. God knows your suffering doesn't have to be for nothing. He's got you in the palm of his hand. He showed up to die on the cross for you. You can be assured of his love. This ends well, even though it can be a real challenge right now. Father, I pray for those that are hurting and suffering right now. We do not want to be in that spot. We want it to end as quickly as possible. May they see your love for them. May they see your control. May they have a sense of, of your peace. May they have a sense of your, uh, of your pleasure. May they have a sense of, uh, of the way that you are growing them and refining them uh, to their benefit and to your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. By the way, I have one other thing that I left out of the close, but you need to hear it today. This week, you need to write a letter to a friend. So the, the church in Philadelphia, right? The Philadelphia is brotherly love, a good friend. So write a letter of encouragement, a letter, right? With a stamp, it goes in the USPS. Not an email, not a text, right? Don't post something on Instagram. Don't go to Facebook. Write a physical letter to a friend and send it to them. Just offering encouragement to them for being your friend. Have a good week.